Hey, we hope you enjoy this sermon from King's Fellowship Church. We hope that these kinds of resources we're able to produce can encourage you and edify you in your walk with Jesus. However, we have to remind you that this is a supplemental tool for your discipleship. It is in no way supposed to replace your attendance and membership within a local congregation near you. It takes a good bit of time and energy to put together resources like these sermons. And if you want to support us in our efforts to do that and, and kind of resource the larger body of Christ, if that's something that you're interested in, the best way that you can help us right now is running over to your Google Maps app on your phone and typing in King's Fellowship Church, Ada Oklahoma. Uh, if you would leave us a review, even if it's just on the sermon, don't don't leave a disingenuous or untruthful review. But if, if you've listened to the sermons, you like the sermons, jump over there and leave a review. Uh, that is the best way you can serve us because we are trying to impact our city. And Google reviews are just a great way for people to realize that we're actually in their backyard. So we thank you so much for tuning in to this podcast and we hope you enjoy. Just want to give you a heads up. This sermon sounds a little bit different and starts kind of in an odd place. The reason it sounds a little different is that we gathered together at the refuge and we did a big corporate service uh, for everyone in Ada. So it was big community service from churches all over Ada came and gathered together for one service. I had the honor of preaching in that community. So this sermon will sound a little bit different. The other thing that you might notice is that the sermon starts after I have read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. So I'm just going to go ahead and read that to you right now, and then we'll dive into the recording of that sermon. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19 reads as follows. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend together with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 14, the very beginning, he says, for this reason. For what reason is Paul bowing his knees before the Father? Why is Paul praying this very Trinitarian prayer. He prays in the name of the Father. Then he prays that the power of the Spirit would be given so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. He's praying a Trinitarian prayer to the one God, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. That God, that God he is speaking to, he's praying to. Why is he praying? For what reason? For the reason that he had lined out earlier in the book of Ephesians. You'll see in chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, the Apostle Paul says that the wall of hostility has been broken down between Jew and Gentile. That Jesus Christ, through his incarnation, his death, burial, and resurrection, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And theologically, there's no longer a wall of hostility between Jew and Greek. We're one new man. We're completely unified. And then he continues in chapter 3, verse 6. The Apostle goes on to say that we are joint heirs, the Gentiles. Who's a Gentile in the house? Amen. We love bacon and shellfish. And because of that, we are joint heirs. We could have access to the promise that was given to the Jewish community. We're one household. We have access to those inheritance that the Jewish people had. It's now being given to us. And it's because of this theological reality that Paul begins to pray. Because the things that are done at the cross, yes, they're true. They are accessible to the church, but they still have to be actualized by God in the church. And if Christ was going to break down walls of hostility, it was going to take a supernatural work of God to break down the walls of hostility. It would take a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to maintain unity. If you and I were going to 
walk in true freedom and true Christian unity like the early church. It's going to require a work of the Spirit. You see, the, the church in the first century, composed of both Jews and Greeks, were separated by various kinds of I don't know, hurdles to their relationships. I mean, you had people worshiping on certain days. They had different festivals. They had different dietary requirements. They had different holidays that they would go and celebrate. The Gentiles and the Jews, they weren't the same. They were so different in so many ways. And we are actually in a very similar way, different in many ways, right? There, there's some people here, your church is run congregationally. And if I preach over tonight, you can't fire me. <laughs> you know, okay, so... I'm just kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. Some of you have your church run by the Episcopacy. Some of you have a presbytery that governs your church. But what unifies us is that Christ has broken down the walls of hostility. Some of you worship on Saturdays. Some of you worship on Sundays. Some of you worship on Wednesdays. You gather together for different groups. And just because we worship a little bit different, we still have walls of hostility broken down because there's one new man in Christ Jesus. And some of us baptize babies. Some of us only baptized consenting adults. But you know what? Those tertiary issues don't matter when we're all worshiping the one king of glory who's broken down the walls of hostility. So Paul prays for the first century church. And in the same way that he prays for the first century church, I hope that you and I can pray this same prayer over our context because we are very different. And just because God has theologically done this great work at the cross, when will this be actualized for you and I? You and I can live short of the calling. You and I can live short of the glory. You and I can live short of God's love in our midst. Least we heed this prayer. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, being rooted and grounded in love. He prays these three kinds of prayers in First Corinthians, Corinthians, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. He says this phrase, that the Spirit would empower you so that Christ may dwell in you, so that you would be rooted in love. This threefold prayer in these two verses comes up. Why does, do we need this activity of the Spirit? Certainly, Paul is writing to a group of people who've already been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1. Right? He, he's already poured out the love of God in our hearts. But why is he praying for the Spirit to indwell us in order that Christ may dwell in our hearts? Because the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us and furnishing us and preparing a place for Christ to dwell. This is a work of sanctification. You and I, certainly, we come into the faith by the blood and the blood alone. But the Holy Spirit works on us and sanctifies us in order that Christ may dwell in us and among us. But it's very important that when we think of the love of God, after Christ has come and established his place, he is then flowing out with the love of God in our hearts. And that's what binds us all together. The Holy Spirit needs to pour out the love of God in our hearts so that we can maintain unity and the bond of peace. But when I speak of the love of God, I think many of you instantly imagine my love for him. But that is not what Ephesians 3 is about. Ephesians 3, when it speaks of the love of God, it's speaking about his love for you. So Christ is dwelling in our hearts so that we would have a revelation of how much Christ loves you. And this is profoundly important because your love for Christ will not keep you. But his love for you can. Think about Peter. Think about James. 
Think about Bartholomew or Thomas. They go to the Last Supper. They're all hanging out with Jesus. You're going to deny me. No way. We're not going to do that, Peter says. We're going to fight by your side. Remember earlier when he was teaching unpopular doctrine? They were like, you have the ways of life, Jesus. Right? Where else could we go? They're not going to, they're not going to devout, scatter after any kind of persecution arises. But then this great and terrible day comes. And they love Jesus so much. They, they have faith in Jesus so much. But when the shepherd is struck, the sheep scatter. They flee. Why? Because their love for him wasn't enough to keep them. But there was one disciple at the foot of the cross. And he knew himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He knew the love of God for him. Can I tell you, our love for him will falter. Our love for him will wane and waver. We'll have days of faithfulness. We'll have days of unfaithfulness. And if you're basing your justification, if you're basing your assurance on your love for him, it will falter. But if you're basing your assurance on his love for you, it is never changing. It is never moving. And it's important that Paul is praying the church be unified. Under what? Under the revelation of how much he loves us. Because if we don't think he loves us and we love him, we will spend the rest of our lives trying to do things and outdo one another to earn favor from him that we already have. The, the reason James 4 says there are uh, divisions and, uh, and dissensions and quarrels amongst us is because we have vain hope and selfish ambition. This is why we fight one another, because we think that we're having to earn favor from God. Well, we're not that church. We're doing things better. Well, we're not that church. We're doing things better. That's the very thing. That's the very, you're not convinced of his love for you. You're trying to earn love from him. But he wants you to be rooted and grounded in his love for you. Because when you realize, when you have a revelation of how much he loves you, you're able to root and ground in love and have unity and fellowship together with all of the saints. To be rooted in Christ's love is to have a revelation of his love for us. And then in verse 18, he talks about being rooted and grounded in love so that you may have strength to comprehend together with all of the saints. Have strength to, comprehend, to, get, to comprehend together with all of the saints. What is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of God's love? He needs you to understand God's love. Do you notice those dimensions, right? Breadth, the depth, the length, the height. These are measurable dimensions of God's love. You can actually have a knowledge of his love. He's invited you to understand how much he loves you. But did you notice it's tied to knowledge and it's tied to the gathering of the saints? Because individually, you're not going to have a profound love for God. We live in Western Christianity where I got me and my Bible. I'm going to close it up. I'm going to hang out in a prayer closet. and It's just me and Jesus. And that's my relationship. Can I tell you? That's just not the way God has designed the Christian faith. It's not. It's meant to be designed in community. I'm from Texas, which means we love football. And love might be an exaggeration. We have an idolatry for football, okay? We love football, okay? And let's decide, I, I'm not a football guy myself, but let's just decide I wanted to, to get interested in football. I might start watching the game on my own, right? But here pretty soon, I'm going to go watch the game with a bunch of my friends. We're going to go watch... Dallas Cowboys play. And as I'm watching the Dallas Cowboys play, I'm going to start coming back every single week 
And after, after watching this for about a year, I'm going to start remembering all the players' names. I'm going to start being able to name uh, the quarterback. I'm going to be able to name the wide receivers. I'm going to be able to name uh, the running backs. I'm going to be able to know all of the, the individuals. But you know what's going to happen once you start watching games with your buddies? You know what happens right after that, right? Fantasy football league. So you start a fantasy football league. And then you start following all the particular stats, right? You, you start knowing, okay, this how many running yards this guy has. This is how many touchdowns this dude has. And, and you start following all the statistics. So now you don't just know the names of the players, but you know the statistics of the players. And once you really start getting radicalized in that, you start showing up to games. And if you're real crazy, you start showing, you get season passes to games. And if you're absolutely nuts, you start painting yourself blue and running up and down the sidelines. But can I tell you something? No one has ever gone from watching the Cowboys in their living room comfortably and painting themselves blue and running up and down the sidelines. It's never happened because you are only radicalized through community. You can only be radicalized through community for, for good and for evil. You want to start a cult group? That's not good, right? But if you want to have the love of God dwelling in your heart in a revelation of who he is and be able to measure the breadth, the length, the depth, the height, you need community to do that. There's a book recent, written recently by Gordon T. Smith called Evangelical Sacramental Pentecostal. And in this book, he talks about how the different traditions have something to offer one another. In the evangelical tradition, we make much of the cross of Jesus Christ. We are captivated by his love of dying on the cross for us. This is the God-man, the sinless one, who's died on the cross for us. He has given himself entirely for us. How beautiful and glorious and wonderful and splendid is the cross. And at the cross, he declares, to tell us die, it is finished. It is done. It's over. And it's the word of God that's proclaimed over the people of God. And this is how evangelicals encounter God. We love what he's done in the cross, but we encounter him through the word. But then we have these sacramental traditions, my high church traditions. And in the high church traditions, the way that we see the beauty and the glory and the splendor of God is through the incarnation. Because God, he was sitting on this throne, the eternal God-man, Jesus Christ, in eternity past. God of God, light from light, sitting on a throne. He is glorious and he's splendid. There are creatures surrounding him that if I described to you, you would think I was on LSD. I mean, these creatures are nuts. They're covered in eyes. They've got different faces. And they're falling down day and night, crying out, holy. And he is surrounded in glory and clothed in light. And he condescends into the womb of a virgin. And he's covered in fluid. I don't know if you guys have seen a birth. It's gross. Guys, he was covered in glory and condescended to be with us. And the sacramental tradition is just blown away about the incarnation. And as much as they love the incarnation, they encounter God through his condescension because Christ condescends. When we take the bread, when we take the wine, and we partake of holy communion, he encounters us. He condescends once again to the table. And not only do the sacramental tradition have much to teach us about the, the incarnation and the experience of God through the sacraments, we have the Pentecostal tradition. So the Pentecostal tradition, that not only do they emphasize the crucifixion, certainly, and, and, and would they embrace potentially the sacramental view, certainly, but the Pentecostal tradition, they emphasize the exaltation and session of Christ. Because not only did he come, not only did he die, but he ascended on high and gave gifts to men. He who ascended in the lower regions of the earth is he who ascended on high and let a host of captives free, give some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. 
Glory to God. Right? To build us up. But, but what does it say when he sat on high and gave gifts to men? That you and I are seated in him right now. So yes, we encounter God through the word. Yes, we encounter God through the sacraments. But we encounter God in this immediate grace that can be given to you at any moment, at any time, because you are seated in heavenly places. Can you see? Can you see how the different traditions are expanding our knowledge and love of God? Can you see how these aren't just groups of people that we can fight and bicker about who's right and who's wrong? This is actually a group of people who can mutually edify and build one another up. Okay, you, you baptize babies, and I disagree with that. But like, can we encourage one another? Can we build each other up? Can we plant water wells in Africa and proclaim the same gospel and the same death, burial, and resurrection? Can we disagree on, okay, you're congregational, and I think that's silly. But hey, we have one God, one mediator, and no walls of hostility. And can we begin to cherish one another, not for what we're different about? Okay, we disagree on these things, we disagree on those things, but start using one another to expand our hope and knowledge and love of God how much he loves us. This is the unpopular part, because I don't know that this unity is for everybody. I just don't know if it's for everybody. As I read the Apostle Paul, he's not talking about some hold hands, sing kumbaya with every single person that wears the name Christian. That's just not what the Apostle Paul is aiming at. If you read the, the, the Gospels, if you read Galatians, he's saying, hey, the Judaizers, they're not brothers. Like, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. In, in Colossians, he's talking about these groups of proto-Gnostics, these, these early Gnostics. And he goes, hey, they're denying uh, th that Christ has come in the flesh. These proto-Gnostics, they've come, and they want to get caught up in, in visions and dreams, and, and they're not rooted to the text. These individuals, you should watch out for them. He continues in 1 Corinthians. And as he writes 1 Corinthians, what does he say? He says, hey, do not worship Christ and idols. You shouldn't unite a demon with the spotless lamb of God. How dare you? So it's not just unity for the sake of unity. It's not just kumbaya, let's lock arms and, and, and pretend we got it all together. Yes, there are tertiary things that you and I definitely should and can disagree on through the text of scripture. But nevertheless, there is one true Christian faith. One. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. One Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit, and became human. Right? He died for us. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, sorry, to the east, and the Son. Right? And with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He's spoken through the prophets. We believe in one God. Not many, not different. So, so I'm not unifying with Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm not unifying with Mormons. I'm not unifying with Muslims. I'm unifying with Christians bought by the blood. I'm unifying with Christians who worship one God in heaven, not a bunch of them. And nevertheless, Paul goes further. It's not merely a theological shallow unity. It's a pure unity. It is also an ethical purity in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul goes out of his way to say, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. So he says, this person thinks they're a Christian. They're calling themselves a Christian. 
And he says, if they take the name brother, if they are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or revelry or drunkenness or swindlers, not even to eat with such a one. So as much as I am coming today to remind you, lock arms with brothers and sisters. Lock arms with brothers and sisters. In that same token, do not lock arms with people who aren't brothers and sisters. Don't even eat with one, is what Paul says. Don't even eat with one. Guys, I understand it's not politically correct for me to talk about these things right now. But man, if the church is saying, hey, you can shed the blood of the innocent and the unborn, I'm not uniting with you. I'm not. In that same token, I'm not uniting with LGBTQ affirming whatevers. We're not doing it. That's not what Jesus said. We unify over his doctrine in his gospel. We are not allowed to just go along with the motions. We're not even to associate with those. And as much as I want to champion the unity and the beauty and the love that God is going to expand, I'll tell you what, if we begin to embrace this unbiblicalness in our communities, if we begin to embrace false doctrine, immorality in our community, we won't begin to grow in our love for God. We'll, be, we'll be, begin to grow in our love of our own image. And we'll worship ourselves rather than the creator. So as much as I want to contend with you to fight for unity and the bond of peace, it's not by all means necessary. Fight for unity and the bond of peace when it's biblical, when it's appropriate. We want to grow in the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of our knowledge of God's love. I, I have to ask you a question. Do you think that we're actually robbing each other from the knowledge of God's love by not walking in unity? How many of us have left our former church and are upset and wounded and we refuse to reconcile and refuse to bring unity and to confess our pain. And because of that, we're actually robbing ourselves and others for the love of God. How many of us, when instead of having conversations and confronting in love, we're actually robbing one another of true revelation of God's love? Because when we're empowered by the Spirit, Christ dwells in us. He wants us to be rooted and grounded in love, to have strength to comprehend with all of the saints. If we refuse to live in love and we refuse to strive for unity, I'm robbing you of glory and you're robbing me of glory. Don't do that. Because it's been purchased by the blood, it's been purchased by the cross, it still has to be actualized by the Spirit in the church. It's the reason Paul is praying this prayer. And then he finishes with this beautiful line in verse 19. He says, strength to comprehend with all the saints, this love of God. And then he says this phrase, in that you may know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 19, that you may know that surpasses knowledge. That you may know that surpasses knowledge. You see anybody seeing a contradiction? It's a know that surpasses knowledge. In the West, we have a phrase called cataphatic theology. It's a big word. You can write it down if you want. I can't spell it. Don't ask me to spell it. Cataphatic theology. So dyslexic. It'd be so bad. Cataphatic theology is this idea that I define God by what he is. God is light. God is love. God is truth. And in the East, there's a different tradition 
where they define God by what he's not. That's called apathetic theology. And they say God is not darkness. And they're afraid of calling God light. Why are they afraid of calling God light? Because light starts and light ends. But God has always been light as long as he's ever existed and always will be light. And there's no shifting shadow or any variation within him in any way ever. So in fact, God is more light than light is light. And in the same way, they would be afraid of saying God is an all-consuming fire, though there's a Bible verse for it. Because they would say fire comes into being and comes out of being once it's done consuming itself. But God is not contingent on anything. God is more fire than fire is fire. He's an all-consuming fire. He's more fire than fire is fire. How many times is Josh going to say fire? But the difference between the, the, the East and the West is this idea of what we call ineffable. God is ineffable. He's not perfectly understood or comprehended. In some sense, we can know things about God, but we can't know all of those things exhaustively because God is truly infinite. And because he is infinite, he is ineffable. And if he is ineffable, that means I can't fully comprehend all there is to know about anything about God. So I can know his love, but I'll never know all of his love that there is to know because I'm finite, even in eternity. When we get to heaven and we have glorified bodies and we're enjoying God forever and ever, and we forget what it was like to even live with any semblance of sin, even in that day, I still won't know all there is to know about his love for me. I won't know then. Yet, we're called to know something that surpasses knowledge, just like the East. They would teach that you actually have to experience God's love. How do you know something that you can't put into human words? You have to experience it. You have to encounter it. What did John say when he goes to heaven and he sees the Lord? He's caught up to the heavens. What does he say? He goes, the color looked like this. And it sounded like this. He couldn't even put it into human words, but he experienced it. What does Luke say of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? His clothes were whiter than like any linenist could ever bleach. Like he, he literally says the linens, like they're just so bright. Like I, I got no words. It's just something they glowed. Okay, so, so he is emanating this glory and they can't describe it. And this is what we miss out on, not just knowledge. Church, we miss out on encountering God's love for us. Because even if I can't describe it perfectly, I can experience that love. And for those who fight and those who contend and those who confess, God invites us not into a cerebral knowledge, which by the way is good. Love God all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We know things about God. He invites us into an experience of that love. And that's worth fighting for. Amen.